HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. At this point, it's likely many of you have tried some version of, for lack of a better term, alt meat. Um, I guess that's what I'm going to be calling it in this episode. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) All forecasts point to the market for plant and cell-based meat alternatives exploding over the next decade. UBS estimates the market will grow to $85 billion by 2030. Barclays puts that number at $140 billion. This year alone, Impossible Foods expanded a partnership with Kroger to sell plant-based burgers across 1,700 grocery stores nationwide, and Starbucks announced it would add an Impossible Foods sandwich to its U.S. menu. At the same time, Beyond Meat partnered with McDonald's to release the McPlant and expanded Walmart sales from 800 to 2,400 locations. And maybe the craziest of all in all of it, earlier this month, Eat Just announced it got the first regulatory approval in the world to begin selling lab-grown chicken in Singapore. So all of these meat alternatives trade on sustainability claims. They say producing their foods results in lower greenhouse gas emissions compared to meat. Many also make claims about lower land or water use. The message is, compared to meat, these foods are better for the planet. But is that based on marketing or real research? So my guest today is Rachel Santo, a senior research program coordinator at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. Rachel is the lead author of a new study published in the journal Frontiers in Sustainable Food Systems, which is a holistic evaluation of meat alternatives. It provides the most comprehensive review to date of the greenhouse gas emissions, land use, water footprints, all of these things uh, of plant-based substitutes and cell-based meat. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So that was like a super long intro. Usually I don't do that. I don't know why, but there's just so much <laughs> there's just so much going on in this space that I wanted 
to set up this conversation, right? I, I was excited when I saw this study because um, these plant-based meats and cell-based meats have really just been kind of taking um, the food world by storm and that there's just more of them every day. They're expanding like crazy. And I've been thinking about these questions about what are, what are the claims really mean and can they back them up for a really long time? So why don't we start with um, what prompted the team at the Center for a Livable Future to start this research project? Why did you think these were important questions? Sure, that's a great start. And thanks for the for the introduction, because um, I was wondering how much there, there is so much here that we're talking about when we talk about meat alternatives. So it's really great to have that background. Um, and a lot of our work at the Center for a Livable Future examines how food production and dietary choices interact with our health and also with our planetary boundaries. Um, so as you can imagine, an increasing focus of our work has been looking at more plant forward diets. And we've been noticing and observing the increasing popularity of plant-based uh, substitutes over the past few years. And I've also been hearing about uh, how cell-based meats are going to be available to consumers soon. So just like you, we were also <laughs> curious about how these products compared to the claims that they were being uh, marketed as, as ways to address climate change or animal welfare concerns or health concerns associated with um, traditional farmed meats. Um, and so we wanted to critically look at those both the benefits and potential limitations of these products and kind of and identify the nuances of the debates and also where more research is needed. Right. Well, right. And I, th I think um, the important thing that we're, we're kind of trying to tease out here is that, like you said, there's more interest in plant-based diets um, as being better for the planet, right? Um, and reducing meat, um, eating meat that's pr produced in more beneficial ways. But um, switching to a plant-based diet or eating vegetables and grains more often is not the same thing as eating a beyond sausage sandwich, right? Like these, <laughs> these alternatives <laughs> are kind of saying, are, are kind of taking that message, like eat less meat, um, eat more plants, and then um, asking us to kind of assume that their product um, meets, meets the same level of um, kind of impact, I guess. Uh, anyway, so so let's talk about the study. So the study is a review of existing research. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of studies that you included and didn't include? Like, what were you actually looking at when it came to the body of research available? Sure. So we started out wanting to to take a food systems lens, a public health lens to these questions. Um, so we wanted to look at existing peer-reviewed research primarily, though um, I can talk a little bit more about how we decided to expand that in some cases and look at non-peer-reviewed research too. But initially we set out to look at peer-reviewed research relevant to um, public health concerns, environmental implications, animal welfare concerns, economic and policy implications as well of both plant-based and cell-based meats. So we um, designed this database search of academic journals um, to find studies that would be relevant to any of these potential implications. And we ended up finding about 150 studies that were relevant to either plant-based meat substitutes or cell-based meats. And of those though, a lot of that research was focused on technical production processes of how to produce cell-based meat or and some of the food science behind it um, or consumer perceptions of, of meat alternatives. And since there had already been reviews of those topics, we really wanted to focus on the food system side of things. Um, but because far less of the research was focused on the specific questions we were asking, uh, we decided to include 
uh, non-peer-reviewed research that we found in the reference list of some of the reviews that were peer-reviewed. So for instance, uh, only, we only found six peer-reviewed studies that provided environmental impact data on plant-based substitutes, but of those six, there were several that cited uh, other research done by the companies themselves that they had put out um, in some cases, or commissioned by the companies and that were done by independent reviewers or researchers and then um, published online. And so we decided to include those. Um, and that decision provided us nearly twice as many studies uh, to look at in terms of environmental data that we were able to average and in, in, into our data set altogether all and also provide more info for the ranges too. Right. I'd, I'd well, also and, mention, and that, sorry, I uh, forgot to mention okay, one thing ahead. too, is that because we were looking only at uh, meat alternatives, we weren't, we were looking at those that were designed to mimic meat exactly. So we excluded studies that were, were uh, looking at other types of alternatives to meat like tofu or tempeh or seitan. We really wanted the ones that are attempting to mimic meat exactly. Yeah, no, that's an important distinction because, I mean, there's there's always been, like, so many veggie burgers, right? But they used to be more about just, like, vegetables, the vegetable patty, and now it's, like, this is specifically a burger designed to mimic meat, and it, it tends to be really different. Um, and so I, I, I think just that I want to understand your point on, you know, you were able to expand the amount of data in the study by using some of these studies that were done by the companies. Um, but I think it's just important to um, kind of note that a lot of this research, like this is one of the places or reasons we need more research, right? Because a lot of the studies that have been done so far on impacts are commissioned by the companies themselves. Is that what you found? We did caution in our study that much of the existing research on both plant-based substitutes and also cell-based meats has either been funded by or commissioned by uh, companies or even organizations that are promoting these products. Um, and while I would say it's definitely something to be cautious about, I don't think it means we need to entirely discount the research. I didn't do a quantitative analysis of the data specifically on this point, but I did scan some of the greenhouse gas metrics, for instance, um, and many of the peer-reviewed studies provided less details on how they calculated their estimates and actually reported lower or better impacts than the reports from the companies themselves. And I think part of it is because the the research is just so new that for a lot of the uh, the actual peer-reviewed research, they don't have enough data to really inform as 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 much as we would want to see. So we decided it, it made sense to include data that even the companies are reporting in some cases because that data is then feeding into the peer-reviewed studies we were finding too. So it, it's a little bit murkier than a clear distinction between the peer-reviewed is less biased. I'm not saying it, I, I still, the peer-reviewed is the gold standard, but uh, but we, we decided to be a little bit more critical in looking at the quality of data and how much was going into the decisions. Um, and I'd also bring up that it's, it's not surprising to see this and that, that the research is funded by these companies. This occurs in other food and nutrition research and also in other fields like medical and technological research. It just, I think it speaks to a broader need for why we need public investment in independent peer-reviewed research. Right. No, I mean, I just, we, we heard about all the money going into um, these, all the investment going to these companies at the beginning of the episode, right? And so right. why wouldn't they be the ones doing the research because they have the <laughs> money to do it, right? Um, yes. Yeah. But no, I think it's just, it's just good to acknowledge. So, um, okay, so, so let's, let's start to get into some of the findings. So you 
looked at a lot of different factors in this study. <laughs> um, we're not going to be able to talk about all of them. Um, I think that the findings on public health are really interesting, and I would encourage people who are interested in listening to um, to find the study and, and read up on those. But I thought since this is the farm report, we're going to focus more on the production side, on the environmental impacts of the agricultural inputs and um, processing. So so let's start with some of the, the environmental impacts. So greenhouse gas emissions is the big one, right? So right. how did, how would you say just overall uh, the plant-based and cell-based alternatives fared compared to their farmed meat counterparts? Sure. So um, before we dive into details, I'll start by just saying that nearly every environmental impact that we looked at followed a general pattern. Um, mm. which was that, generally speaking, whether plant-based or cell-based, uh, meat alternatives likely have lower environmental impacts compared to beef. Um, there are a few exceptions which we can talk further about, but in general, conventionally farmed beef typically has the highest environmental impacts among all foods. So if that's your point of reference, almost any alternative to it is going to look sustainable by comparison. It's when right. you start getting into the other meats or protein foods that we looked at that it gets more complicated. So in the case of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, for instance, plant-based substitutes resulted in fewer emissions per serving of protein is what we decided to look at. But you could look at other metrics, too, uh, compared mm -hmm. to shrimp and prawns, trawled lobster, pork, poultry and eggs. They did have... Uh, these benefits that were less pronounced compared to the benefits of replacing beef just because beef's emissions are so high compared to everything else. I'd also mention mm -hmm. that their emissions, the emissions associated with these substitutes were higher than those that were associated with tuna, uh, insects, tofu, and less processed pulses and peas. In the case of cell-based right. meat... Uh, the, the, diff the impacts were a little bit different. So the existing research is far more speculative at this point. We only found four studies of cell-based meat and they were all hypothetical scenarios because, none of, because no cell-based meat is out on the market yet. <laughs> There's been no studies of actual products available for consumers. So this is all purely speculative at this point. Um, but from those few studies that have modeled different scenarios, the potential greenhouse gas emissions per serving of protein were comparable to or even slightly higher than those of poultry, pork, eggs, and some uh, types of farmed fish. Okay. So we, you mentioned, you know, beef is obviously the most emissions intensive. And so pretty much there's a trend where if you compare any of the alternatives to beef, they, they come out ahead. Um, I, I'm curious, the data you're using to compare, um, is it all from sort of typical industrial, um, you know, in this country, most meat comes from CAFO systems. Um, is Are we only comparing it to that or does the data sort of span um, all different production systems? Like I know some people are going to see this and say, um, well, what about if you're producing beef in a, you know, on pasture and sequestering carbon. I mean, that that's going to take us out. We can't get into all that because there's like a million questions in there. Yeah. But I'm just curious what, what, what the data actually, like, is it including different systems or what you're mostly comparing it to like the typical industrial system? Sure. So it's a complicated question, but we'll do our best. So <laughs> we compared the impacts of the meat alternatives primarily to those associated with conventionally farmed meats um, for okay. several reasons. And the first being that, at least in the U.S., only 1% of our current beef supply comes from exclusively pasture-based systems. Now, there are those who argue that this could go up to about 
to increase to about a third of our current beef supply. Like we have the capacity land-wise to do that. But as we currently are, only about 1% is in that model. And the numbers and types of more sustainable alternative operations are slightly different for other meats like poultry and pork. But in general, the vast majority of meat in our country comes from these more industrial type operations. So we felt that was the more accurate comparison. Um, and in some cases, some of the impacts that we looked at, like pesticide use and fertilizer use, the environmental impacts of these alternative production systems are going to be looking different and, and probably better for these environmental metrics uh, compared to conventional meats. So those comparisons are going to look different. But in other cases, like with greenhouse gas emissions and land use, the situation is a lot more nuanced and complicated. And we decided it was outside the scope of our study to get into all the, the academic debates around sequestration. And, and it's a lot more complicated than I think some of the uh, the press can can get to in some of the articles. But there's a lot of academic debate about the extent to which uh, sustainable production methods in terms of beef can, can actually sequester a substantial amount of carbon for a long period of time. So anyway, all of right. that said, we just we didn't feel like it was worth getting into those nuances in such a broad overview of the study, given that most of the meat in our country is coming from non-exclusively pastured systems. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more on plant-based and cell-based meat alternatives. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Firm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Rachel Santo from the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins. And we've been talking about a new research study on the environmental and public health impacts of plant-based and cell-based meat alternatives. So I'm like trying to figure out what to ask you next because there's so many things that I want to ask you and we're going to run out of time. Um, I think let's talk a little bit about water because, you know, you mentioned there's sort of this general trend that the alternatives do better than beef um, on most of the environmental metrics. Um, but I think water use is, correct me if I'm wrong, but is water use one of the exceptions when it comes to cell-based alternatives? Yeah, so it's complicated with water use in particular because we act there were far fewer studies that modeled potential water use 
footprints of either type of meat alternatives. Um, so for cell-based, we actually only two of the studies that we found out, ah. of, we found four studies and only two of them looked at water use. So right there, these uh, our numbers are only going to be an average, essentially, of those two studies estimates. And so as a result, I, I, it is hard to make a lot of generalizations about the potential impacts uh, for water use and for many of these uh, overall environmental implications because these are speculative hypothetical studies anyway, but especially for water use, because there were only two, I wouldn't, I wouldn't read too much into that until we have some more data to, to suggest whether that trend is actually true. Got it. Yeah. I mean, those systems are so new. It's almost like we don't even really know what the production systems even look like yet. Right. Exactly. And to be honest, these two studies were one was from 2012 and one was from 2015. And I mean, this, this, research and, and development is happening so rapidly that I, I imagine the systems look a lot different than they did five years ago. And we just don't have a lot of robust peer-reviewed research yet showing what those impacts are and what those production systems are yet. Um, but I imagine they'll be coming out in the next few years. Yeah. Well, and along those same lines, let's talk about animal welfare because so it, for plant-based meats, the animal welfare benefits are obvious. If you don't believe animals should be eaten or you don't <laughs> want animals to be farmed, you know, there aren't any, right? You eat plants instead. Um, but Selby's meat, this was really fascinating to me. Um, can you talk a little bit about the main sources of the cells needed to produce these meats and what the analysis found about what that means? Sure. So the current industry standard is to use animal cells, animal muscles, stem cells, actually, that you take from the biopsy of an animal. Um, there are hopes that eventually embryonic stem cell lines could be used to produce cell-based meats. But right now, for technology and other safety reasons, muscle stem cells are from these biopsies are obtained from an adult animal um, and are used. And in theory, substantially higher amounts of meat could be produced per animal from the limited number of biopsies needed to obtain those muscle cells compared to at least the nearly 10 billion livestock that are slaughtered in the US each year. That said, I haven't seen any research that actually quantifies the number or even magnitude of animals implicated in producing cell-based meat. So some of this is, is just we're, we're assuming and a lot of people are assuming that there will be theoretically fewer, um, but all of the right. nuances about how many biopsies, how often and et cetera, just haven't been quantified or spelled out yet in in research at least. Right. And it's, I mean, it is just this aspect of cell-based meat that I think people should understand, which is that you, I mean, as it stands right now, like you said, the technology might change and then we might be able to use embryonic stem cells at some point, but right now you do have to use animals to do it. And so if that's your concern, it's, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different concerns and arguments, but if just, just kind of understanding that that is part of this production system, I think, um, is useful. Um, and the other part of that was input. So you also talked about how cell-based meats require inputs. Um, one that you talked about was fetal bovine serum. Uh, can you talk about what that is used for and, and how companies source it? Sure. So fetal bovine serum is a growth supplement that's used in cell and tissue culture media, not just in this industry, but in drug and vaccine production and tissue engineering as well. It's a pretty commonly used uh, substance. And and it remains one, I would say it remains one of the biggest challenges for the cell-based meat industry is trying to find a viable replacement um, because Fetal bovine serum is extracted from the blood of a live cow fetus after its mother is slaughtered for meat processing. So it's a byproduct of the meat industry. It's not 
it's not a product through which animals are solely raised to produce. But since the overall goal for cell-based meat is to be no-kill or to involve as few animals as possible, it is critical from even just a product viability standpoint to, that they find a replacement. Um, and there are serum-free growth media out there, and research around it is really increasing rapidly. I've seen varying reports on how expensive it is and how effective it might be at replacing fetal bovine serum. I've also heard some companies even report that they are already producing cell-based meat without it. Um, but even just that first company that was approved this week or last week in Singapore uh, did acknowledge that fetal bovine serum is still used in its operations. So given that our study was primarily focused on the current academic research, and since there's no academic research proving that uh, cell-based meat is being produced in viable quantities and at a viable expense uh, without fetal bovine serum, we decided to talk about its implications and still include it in our research. Right. It's this this whole um, world of, of cell-based meat is just really fascinating, like what goes into it. <laughs> like, right. It's just all of, it just made me think there's so much that like goes into it that you don't realize, you know? Yeah, for and, sure. And, and why these kinds of studies are important because, you know, it's like I said earlier, like it's not, you're not just saying, okay, I'm not going to eat meat, I'm going to eat plants. Like you're saying, I'm going to eat this manufactured product and understanding what that product actually is and how it's produced and what the implications are, you know, is a, is a job. <laughs> so, um, so, so there's a lot, there's a lot more here, but you know, we're, we're running out of time. So just, you know, in terms of all of the environmental implications that you went through, public health, socioeconomic implications, overall for you, what are some of just like the big picture takeaways from this project, if you had to sum it up in a few sentences? Sure. Um, well, I'd say one of the the biggest changes or biggest uh, overall takeaways I would want to emphasize is that given the clear urgency to need to reduce, and I'm not saying eliminate, but just reduce our meat consumption in the U.S. Uh, and other high-income countries, it, it's understandable that plant-based substitutes are gaining traction and even the cell-based meat industry is starting to, to make headway. It makes sense because people are trying to shift their diets to be more plant-forward. That said, I want to remind people that we're not limited to a choice between conventional meats and meat alternatives. We chose to compare those two in our study because uh, we wanted to understand how they compare to the claims they're making, but less processed legumes, um, like eating pulses directly, beans and lentils and soybeans, uh, have even clearer health and environmental benefits than products that are manufactured from them. That doesn't mean that there isn't a role for these alternatives, but just to be clear that those aren't the only things and you can still have a healthy diet without eating any of the meat alternatives if you wanted to. Um, another big takeaway that we found is that we need more research on a lot of the broader um, socioeconomic and political implications of these products, especially because they aren't a silver bullet for answering a lot of the questions in our food system, a lot of the challenges and problems. They're not necessarily going to address problems with food industry consolidation or um, improving the livelihoods of farmers and farm workers or uh, addressing the affordability of healthy diets. And so some of these bigger picture questions, I think, still need to be part of our conversation around how to change the food system. And I just don't want those to be lost when, when, when these alternatives are being presented as the way to save the world. Right, because they're really being presented based on some limited environmental metrics, you know, solving for sort of one problem, but as exactly. you so 
eloquently lay out there, you know, the food system involves all kinds of implications and problems. And um, these are sort of a, just an, another industry to replace one <laughs> that, um, you know, we need to, to kind of move away from, like you said, just reduce, reduce the amount of meat in this country. Um, well, Rachel, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. I'm sorry we didn't get uh, to talk more about the many aspects of the study, but um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed being here and talking. <laughs> and I want to just let listeners know that if you want to learn more, you can find the study online in the journal Frontiers in Sustainable Food Systems. It's called Considering Plant-Based Meat Substitutes and Cell-Based Meats, a Public Health and Food Systems Perspective. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.